It is Wednesday, January 31st, 2018, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we speak first with Andrew Jans. He is a Democratic candidate running to unseat Devin Nunes in California's 22nd Congressional District. We need to start over with a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives. We can go after all the things that Devin and the president have been trying to cover up for the past year. Then we're joined by University of Washington law professor Catherine Watts, co-author of the just-released book, The Limits of Presidential Power, to help us understand what may unfold if the GOP and Trump succeed in removing special prosecutor Robert Mueller from the Russia investigation. The political flames of controversy would really erupt. All of that, and we have our weekly dose of good news. Andrew Jans is running for Congress in California's 22nd Congressional District, a seat currently held by Devin Nunes, who is chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Andrew is deputy district attorney for Fresno County, and we are so glad that he could join us. Andrew Jans, thank you so much for being with us on the show. Hey, thanks for having me today. So I very much want to get your take on what Devin Nunes is currently doing regarding his intelligence memo that alleges abuses by the FBI in the Russia investigation. But before we get to that, uh, first, I'd like to get your sense on uh, how your campaign is proceeding. How are things going out there? You know, the campaign is uh, we're in a really critical stage right now, rolling into 2018. Uh, I think we are in a very uh, strong position. You know, this week we're opening up uh, our campaign office. Uh, it'll be the first of uh, many in the district. So uh, there's a lot of excitement, uh, not just locally, but nationally as well, given all of uh, Devin's failings uh, on the uh, Intelligence Committee. Yeah, I think a lot of eyes are going to be on your race, uh, certainly in the coming year. And it is 2018, so the rubber is meeting the road right now. I, you know, as a native Californian myself, uh, I know your district is pretty red. I, it was redistricted in 2013, but it runs through the Central Valley. It incorporates parts of Fresno and Tulare counties, and it has voted mostly Republican for president, senator, and governor, uh, though in 2016, while they went for Trump, 52 to 42, they voted for Democrat Kamala Harris for Senate, 52 to 47. Do you see things shifting there? Absolutely. You know, the the county itself of Fresno, which uh, is the largest county in the district, uh, voted for a Democratic president uh, in the last three presidential uh, races. Uh, we also put a poll out in the field uh, not too long ago, which puts us basically within five points of Devon. And this really is exciting because it closes a 26-point gap. He beat his last opponent by about 26 points um, and uh, similar uh, results in previous races. So uh, for us to be within five without having uh, the people uh, hear anything about me, having not heard my story, uh, the fact that uh, I'm a a son of immigrants, local, grew up in the district, uh, is part of the— Yeah, you're from Visalia, right? Yeah, I grew up in Visalia, and um, after I finished law school, I moved back with uh, my wife. And, uh, you know, I think that once people hear about uh, my background, I think they're going to be even more excited and we'll be able to close that five-point gap uh, by uh, by November. Well, so running as a Democrat in that part of California, what are some of the issues that you find are resonating, uh, not just with Democrats, but also with independents and maybe even moderate Republicans in the 22nd? You know, I think that people understand that the Central Valley is really the the not only the breadbasket of the state of California, but of the entire nation. Yeah. So we are heavily dependent upon agriculture. So water is an issue that people here are uh, very 
uh, focused on. Devin has been in office for 15 years and made has made a number of promises related to water and water infrastructure. You know, we're just out of a six-year drought, and uh, you know we're back to we're basically back to square one. And it's a bunch of finger pointing by Devin, but uh, you know at the end of the day, we need a candidate that can come in and actually provide on some of these 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 promises, these campaign promises, somebody that can actually get projects here to the Central Valley. Uh, and get them built. Well, you know, some of the more uh, national-looking issues, uh, things like immigration, that's part of your platform. Uh, as I mentioned, you are the deputy district attorney with the Fresno County District Attorney's Office, and so you are a prosecutor, but you've said that you take issue with the way that ICE has been conducting raids and specifically threatening witnesses and victims of crime, making it harder for people like you in law enforcement. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the immigration issue is very um, important here, especially in the Central Valley. Uh, we have Republicans and Democrats here that I've spoken to that are generally supportive of uh, pathway to citizenship for these folks. And um, people realize that, you know, these, you know, uh, uh, immigrant communities and, you know, me being an immigrant myself, I understand what it is to uh, being a son of immigrants. I understand what it is, you know, for folks to come to the United States of America, try to start a life and um, really provide for their families. Uh, I do see this issue when I prosecute cases where I have victims uh, or witnesses to crimes that uh, are unwilling to come forward, unwilling to testify. Uh, for fear that uh, ICE may come out and uh, arrest and, and, and deport them. So I see this uh, here on the ground every day, uh, which is why I'm opposed to uh, the local sheriff here um, basically stationing uh, these federal officers in, um, in, our, in our public spaces. Okay, so I would like to shift over and get your take on what your likely opponent, Devin Nunes, is currently doing. And this is the reason why I think there's going to be a lot of – there's going to be quite a spotlight on your race. Uh, As I mentioned, Nunes is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. He has created a four-page memo that alleges that the FBI abused the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, when it used opposition research on Trump and Russia as part of its investigation. Uh, The committee just voted on party law on Tuesday to release the memo to the public, and now it is up to Trump whether or not to release it. Uh, I should mention there is another version of the memo written by Democratic Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff that takes issue with much of what is alleged in the Nunes memo. Um, all of this is just, it's just unprecedented. Um, in a statement released on Monday, you have called Devin Nunes a national security risk. Expand on that. Sure. Well, I think that uh, let's let's go back a couple months, back to April, when Devin made that secret uh, Uber trip to the White House in the middle of the night and really uh, created this sideshow uh, on the front lawn of the White House where he went to the White House to get the information and then came back the next morning and handed it over to Trump right. uh, and held that press conference. Uh, and then a couple months later, you know, he recused himself and then he was involved in this unmasking uh, ordeal uh, trying to Uh, really point the finger at uh, Loretta Lynch, uh, Barack Obama's uh, then attorney general. And, you know, it's it's just one controversy after another with Nunes. And it just seems to me that he's trying to throw everything at the wall and see uh, and and try to see what sticks. And all of these controversies are really created by Devin Nunes himself. And it's my understanding that this memo was drafted by him uh, and his close confidants. And, you know, he doesn't really have a strong record with respect to national security issues. We've seen him uh, uh, under multiple ethics complaints uh, from nonpartisan groups uh, regarding the mishandling of classified information. 
So, you know, I think that at the end of the day, to me as a prosecutor, you know, I'm really trained to um, look for the truth and to fight for justice. And this whole thing just really stinks of corruption. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it's very reckless of him to uh, release the memo in the fashion that they intend. Um, it really is going to work to undermine uh, what the good men and women over at the FBI do. You know, I've had occasion to work with uh, these folks. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're just after the truth. They're after um, they're after bad guys. And, you know, I think that we're in a really strange place when we have uh, Republicans like Devin Nunes and Donald Trump really um, being the ones sounding this drumbeat, uh, this anti-law enforcement drumbeat, uh, which I think is a real shame as a prosecutor. And, you know, we go out there every day. Uh, Republicans or Democrats. I mean, Robert Mueller is a registered Republican and, uh, you know, he's doing a fine job. You know, I'm a registered Democrat and I'm going out there trying to uh, seek justice for victims and, uh, you know, just to make sure that the truth comes out. And we're just we're just really trying to um, do what's right. And for them to go out there and undermine uh, the criminal justice system in the way that they have, I think, is going to be very detrimental to our, our democracy in the long run. Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned that uh, Mueller is a Republican. Uh, James Comey uh, was a Republican as well. And so it's not necessarily breaking down along party lines. It seems to be breaking down along the lines of, I guess, uh, truth and falsehood, uh, integrity, and uh, I, I suppose whatever the opposite of integrity is. Uh, you suggested actually rather hilariously in your statement that Nunes retire, quote, so he can take a job with Fox News as a Trump defender. So well done there, sir. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, he can go to, he can, he can, I mean, he's really never left the Trump transition team. You know, he was on the transition team and he still appears to me to be on it. Um, yeah, he can go work at Fox News uh, as a commentator defending Trump or he can go work uh, on K Street as a lobbyist because he votes their way every time. Special interests, corporations, uh, he takes a lot of money from them. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I've done very early on is to not take any corporate uh, PAC money, which I think is very important. Because at the end of the day, uh, I want to be owned by the constituents in my district, not major corporations that uh, try to uh, influence legislation in a way that benefits their shareholders. So you are somebody who has devoted your professional life to upholding the law. Uh, but we've just talked about the dichotomy between truth and falsehood. And uh, you know, Adam Schiff's memo apparently shows that proper procedures were followed uh, by the FBI in obtaining the FISA warrant. Um, that memo is going to stay unreleased uh, for now, again, on a party line vote in the Intelligence Committee. Uh, writers at the Daily Coast and elsewhere have suggested that Schiff should do what California Senator Dianne Feinstein did when she released a Senate Judiciary transcript to the public. How would you see a move like that by Schiff? Well, I don't know if the um, protocols of the House are the same as ones in the Senate. Uh, I've read somewhere that Senator Feinstein was able to use some sort of, I don't know, congressional rule to allow it out in the Senate, but mm. it might not apply in the House. But anyway, I think it's very telling that Republicans are so uh, willing to release this, this what we're calling a fake memo by, by Nunes, uh, but unwilling to release a memo by you know Adam Schiff. And I think really at the end of the day, uh, this is another attempt by the Trump administration and his allies to undermine this this Mueller investigation. Um, you know, we saw that uh, President Trump used uh, a similar type of memo written by Rod Rosenstein to uh, as a pretext to fire uh, James Comey. It's ironic, and, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and it's funny that they're using this now, I think, as a pretext to get rid of uh, Rosenstein. So, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, their conduct is shameful uh, and people all across the country should be concerned and alarmed. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we need to hold them accountable. So 
In contrast, then, to what the Republicans are doing and what they seem to stand for, I'll ask you what I ask every Democratic candidate that I've spoken to on this show, and that is, uh, at, at a bedrock, what do you personally see as Democratic values? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Democrat because traditionally uh, Democrats have been the party that is fighting every day for working families. And uh, it's a party that strives to achieve uh, justice. And this isn't justice uh, in terms of, of, of criminal justice, but this is justice in terms of economic and social justice as well. You know, at the end of the day, I think that uh, that Democrats have, you know, traditionally been the party of, of the little guy. And um, you know, I think part of the reason why I'm a prosecutor is because I have the privilege every day to go out there and be an advocate for people that have suffered through some of the most uh, trying times in their lives, um, being victims of crime, being victims of violent crimes. Um, so I think that at the end of the day, uh, you know, Democrats should stand for um, for fairness and equality. And that's what I stand for. So just one last question. I'll let you go. Um, A lot of people are looking to the 2018 elections to be what is called a blue wave uh, to shift the balance of power uh, in D.C. Uh, You're speaking right now to a very motivated audience listening here, uh, but it is going to be a long haul to November. What are you saying to people that you speak to on the stump to keep them motivated and working hard over the next 10 months to make this happen? Great question. Um, you know what? To be honest with you, with you know Devin and his antics in Washington, it's not very. Uh, it's not <laughs> hard to get people energized. <laughs> yeah, people are excited. People are excited about this race, and um, you know we're seeing um, in the district what's happened all across the country in places like Virginia uh, and in Alabama. Um, people are excited. People are are are, are coming out. Uh, people that have never volunteered before. So I think that it's important to continue to um, bring to light uh, some of the negative things that that Devin and the president are doing in Washington, but at the same time, give them a vision, give them a vision of of, of, of the future, uh, what we can accomplish together. Uh, one of the things that I'm also talking about is the fact that because this investigation on the House side has been so botched, uh, we need to start over and we need to start over with a uh, Democratic controlled House of Representatives so we can have subpoena power, so we can go after all of the things that Devin and the president have been trying to cover up uh, for the past year. So we can only do that, though, if we win back the House of Representatives. And I'm very happy and excited that we're one of the few targeted races here on the West Coast. The path to controlling the House of Representatives runs through the Central Valley. It runs through uh, the congressional district that I hope to be uh, representing uh, by this time next year. Well, I think uh, everybody listening uh, feels the same way. Uh, if folks are interested in donating to your campaign, opening their wallets, where can they go? You can go to www.andrewjanz, for congress.com. Andrew Jans, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you. So as the efforts by congressional Republicans to undermine the investigation of special prosecutor Robert Mueller ramp up, uh, people are growing very concerned that Trump may use these findings to justify firing Mueller, uh, something that itself gives way to a number of particularly unsettling questions. And so to help shed light on some of those questions, we are fortunate to be joined by Catherine Watts. She is a Jack R. McDonald Endowed Chair and a Professor of Law at the University of Washington. And she is co-author, along with fellow UW Law Professor Lisa Mannheim, of the just-released book, The Limits of Presidential Power. Catherine Watts, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. So first, what an incredibly timely book. Um, What specifically prompted you to write it? Was there a moment of overreach by the Trump administration? Was it uh, maybe just the many questions that have been raised uh, over the last year? It really was the many questions that have been raised, but actually questions that started to be raised even before President Trump um, came into office. In Mm. the wake of the election, my colleague, the Mannheim and I, and others here in the law school building really started to receive a a significant uptick in questions from members of the public, journalists across the country, who wanted to better understand presidential power. They had questions like, what exactly is an executive order? Of course, those had come up under President Obama as well, but there was sort of a renewed attention on questions of presidential power and the laws that govern a president. Well, I will encourage people to turn to the book to answer those sorts of questions, specifically about uh, executive power, which I think would warrant a show uh, all unto itself. But I want to start by talking about what I was mentioning in the intro, which I think would be best begun by defining the boundaries of the power of the executive, specifically when it comes to the firing of a special prosecutor. Now, it is not in the president's power to fire a special prosecutor directly, correct? He would have to get somebody at the Department of Justice, in this case, uh, Deputy Director Rod Rosenstein, or maybe somebody beneath him, uh, to do it, right? That's correct, as as things currently stand, as the um, laws currently stand. And the reason for that is, right now there are some regulations, some rules on the books within the Department of Justice. And those regulations say that the power to fire a special prosecutor like Mueller rests with the Attorney General, or in this case, that would be Rod Rosenstein, who's acting in place of the Attorney General since Sessions is recused in the Russia matter. So those regulations say that Trump can't directly fire Mueller. Instead, that power rests with Rosenstein. Okay. Well, you know, Trump has talked about the DOJ as being, because it is part of the executive branch, that he has ultimate power over it. Uh, To be clear, he is talking about it in terms of it protecting him. But what specifically are the limits of the executive over the Department of Justice? Well, the president is not above the law, of course. And so the Supreme Court has told us, for example, in the Nixon tapes case that emerged in the Watergate controversy, has told us that when there are regulations on the books, for example, regulations like those DOJ regulations I mentioned earlier, that even the president has to abide by them so long as those regulations are in place. So some of the president's lawyers are making arguments that suggest that the president could effectively ignore those sorts of regulations, that the president, as the nation's chief law enforcement officer, um, can ultimately be the one to decide how to proceed in in a case like this one. But that's not consistent with what, for example, the Supreme Court has told us in a case like Nixon, which says so long as those regulations are on the books, even the president has to follow them. That, though, of course, leaves the question of how long will those regs stay on the book and what can the president do to try to get those wiped away? Yeah. And so it gets into some ambiguous territory there, uh, which I I think is surprising to a lot of people because we expect the law to have sort of clean edges and boundaries. And in this situation, um, it doesn't. And particularly as it it regards the executive. Um, So sort of proceeding down that path, if Trump is able to get someone to fire Robert Mueller, Legal analysts have said that this would put the country into a constitutional crisis. So first, what is meant by a constitutional crisis? 
there's actually not one universally accepted definition of the term constitutional crisis, mm. and it gets, a th it gets thrown around in many different ways. Um, but many legal scholars agree that they would define it as a serious problem, a really truly immensely serious problem that the Constitution can't resolve or answer, that the Constitution doesn't help us to get out of. Um, one could occur, for example, if one branch of government just willfully and flagrantly violates clear constitutional limits. It's also, I think, helpful in trying to define a constitutional crisis to talk about what a constitutional crisis is not. It's not something that arises every time governmental actors are in conflict with each other. If that were the definition of a constitutional crisis, then our country would would nearly be in a perpetual state of constitutional mm, crisis. Sure. And that's because the founders of our country, right, they purposely divided up power. They purposely created a government that had friction built into the system by dividing up federal power among the three branches and by dividing power between the state and the federal governments. In their minds, in the founders' minds, conflict is a sign of good government and the absence of conflict is a sign of tyranny. So it is important in, in, in thinking about how to define the term constitutional crisis that we don't assume any time we see friction in our government that we are on the brink or on the edge of some monstrous constitutional crisis. Got it. Uh, but I will press you just a little bit further on this. So if Trump were to take the actions necessary to have Robert Mueller removed, mm -hmm. would that constitute a constitutional crisis in your mind? I think it would depend on what followed from those actions. Um, we very much had that kind of a situation in the Watergate era with the Saturday Night Massacre right. when Nixon went through number one and number two in line at DOJ and then had to go to number three before succeeding in getting somebody to fire the, the um, prosecutor that he wanted uh, fired. Um, in the wake of that, I think the country many felt that there was a crisis at that moment, but the constitutional crisis in the end, a lot of scholars would say, was actually averted because the investigation continued, right? The political reaction and outcry was strong, and the investigation continued. So his termination, his firing, didn't end the investigation. In the end, how the matter resolved was Nixon resigned. So the constitutional system stood and withheld, and we weathered the problem, many would say, without rising to the level of a full-blown constitutional crisis. So it's possible we could see a scenario like that here. It's really hard to say what would happen if Trump went and fired a number of individuals at DOJ. What would flow after that would be critical. Well, so let's talk about that. So if that were to happen on a technical level, what would happen to the investigation that Mueller is currently conducting if he were removed? Would it continue in some other form? Does it depend? So it would depend on who's in charge um, at DOJ and um, what sorts of directions or, or orders are given um, by those in charge at DOJ. It also could depend on what's left standing of the special counsel's um, structure, even if Mueller is fired, for example, are the regulations that speak to the creation of a special counsel still intact? Is there still the possibility of somebody else stepping into his shoes? Right. There would be a lot of what-ifs that would have to be sorted through. 
So if Mueller is removed and nobody replaces him, I'm curious what happens to the indictments that have already uh, been filed. Uh, Currently, there are four people who have been indicted in the investigation, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, former campaign chairman Paul Manafort, Manafort's associate Rick Gates, and the foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos. So if Mueller is removed, what happens to those indictments? Do they still move forward? Likely that's going to depend on whether... um, Mueller is replaced with a different special counsel who would then pick up or could pick up where Mueller left off or whether um, there is no replacement and um, the powers that that then be within DOJ decide not to move forward. So that's very much going to depend on who the players are that are left standing once any firings occur, if they do occur. So there is the possibility legally that those indictments could be dismissed. Yes, if the federal government's prosecutors no longer want to continue, then it's within the federal government's power to to drop. I mean, this suggests that um, this all goes to highlight the the power that normally does reside within agencies like the Department of Justice. They have a significant amount of discretion in deciding when to move forward, for example, with particular prosecutions or particular investigations. So who people are within an agency like Department of Justice matter a great deal. And within the Department of Justice, it's sort of history and tradition of having some independence from the president also matters a great deal. You know, you brought up Watergate earlier, and this often comes up as a point of reference in talking about all of this. And, of course, we do know how Watergate ended, and we're still in the middle of this. But in your mind, how useful is Watergate as a parallel to what has happened in the investigation up to this point? I think it provides a a useful data point in a couple different ways. One of the ways that it provides a, a useful data point is, in some ways, it can be somewhat reassuring because we see there that we many in the nation felt like we were nearing the edge of a true full-blown constitutional crisis Mm. but the conflict ended up resolving itself the constitutional structure held and you ended up with the resolution with nixon resigning so to that extent that historical data point can provide some some reassurance that even in a moment where you you might feel like you're at the brink things might end up working out um that's that's one way in which it's relevant. Another is we got some key legal rules and legal precedents from that era, from the Watergate crisis. So, for example, the Nixon tapes case is a case that has a lot of significance today to the investigations going on. The Nixon tapes case is the case where the United States Supreme Court said that Nixon needed to turn over White House tapes to allow access to them for criminal proceedings. So that case has a lot of relevance today for that reason. And also because in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court also took a look at a rule that was on the books within the Department of Justice and said, so long as that rule is on the books, the executive branch must abide by it. So that, of course, has relevance today to the extent that Mueller was appointed pursuant to DOJ regs, and he can be terminated only pursuant to those DOJ regs so long as they remain on the books. So if Mueller is allowed to continue his investigation, he can do one of 
two things when it's concluded. He can give his findings to Congress in hopes, uh, one would imagine, that if the evidence were conclusive, they would move to impeach, and then the Senate would have to convict by a two-thirds majority, which seems unlikely given this Senate, or he can move to indict. Um, I think a lot of people would love to see Donald Trump removed from the White House by federal agents, but uh, apart from the fact that it arguably sets a very dangerous precedent to indict the executive, why is it legally problematic to indict a sitting president? Well, it's legally, I would say, it's legally uncertain whether um, a sitting president could be criminally indicted for conduct. We don't have we don't have precedent for it. So the Constitution specifies impeachment as a mechanism for ouster, right? It's the mechanisms that specified in the Constitution for ousting a president from office for certain types of misconduct. The other mechanism for ouster that we have written into the Constitution is the 25th Amendment, a mechanism that is very difficult to use because so many different political stars and other sorts of stars have to align. So those you, I, I actually would love for you to just kind of talk a little bit about what the 25th Amendment is. This is the amendment that provides for the removal of the executive if uh, he is incapacitated in some way. And I've right. heard people talk about the difficulty and, and the many moving parts that would have to come together in order for this amendment to be uh, successfully invoked in removing somebody like Trump. Uh, can you tell us why that is so? Well, you basically need um, a number of different high-level government officials to come together and to agree that the president is unable to continue to discharge his powers and duties. And so the president then has an opportunity, if he disagrees, to say, well, I disagree and I'm going to you know, resume um, my duties. And if he does that, then it goes back um, to Congress, and Congress has to take a look at it again, and you need a supermajority um, of both houses in the end to conclude that the president's unable to discharge his powers and duties. And so it's this kind of back-and-forth process that the 25th Amendment sets up at first that at the very initial stages might involve members of um, his cabinet and Congress, and then again the ball could go back in the president's court and then tossed back to Congress to come up with a supermajority mm-hmm. to oust the president. So it's, it's a legally um, complicated, or I should say procedurally complicated mechanism that requires actions to be taken by a number of different actors. And so for that reason, it's a difficult way to oust a president. But it is one, in addition to impeachment, that the Constitution does speak to. So the Constitution sets up these two different political mechanisms for removing a sitting president um, from office. And so from the fact that the Constitution only mentions these two, some argue, well, that means you can't proceed with something like a criminal indictment against a sitting president. You need to proceed with the political route, the impeachment route first. Many legal scholars disagree with that, but there's uh, legal uncertainty as to the right answer because, again, the Constitution doesn't provide uh, tremendous clarity around that question. So because you are an expert on the limits of presidential power, I'd like to end by getting your take on something that just happened. On Tuesday, Congress voted overwhelmingly with a veto-proof majority to continue imposing sanctions on Russia. And Trump has said that he simply will not enforce that. Can you 
shed some light on what's going on here? Is something like this within the power of the executive to do? So normally when Congress says that something must happen and it has the and it has followed the right legislative procedures, right, the legally required procedures to say that something must happen, that something is going to uh, be legally required, the president must follow Congress's instructions because it's Congress that makes the law. Having said that, when we start to move into the area of foreign affairs, things can get a little complicated about the balance of power between the president and Congress. There can start to be more disagreements about who has the power to answer a particular question, such as a question about sanctions. And that's because the Constitution gives the president expressly the power to, for example, act as the nation's commander-in-chief. Um, and so there's this this sort of balance of power when we get into the foreign sphere, there's a number of different powers given to the president that give him some grounds to say, I have a voice here. And then Congress, of course, has other powers it can turn to to say it has a voice here. And that can lead to some sort of skirmishes between president and the legislative branch. Is there a precedent that comes to mind for you for this? So I can think of many precedents that come to mind involving skirmishes in the foreign affairs context, but I can't think of one that's... Um, directly on point involving sanctions um, like this one. That's not to say it's not out there, but that's not within, um, you know, not at the tip of my tongue at the moment. So we will end on this, and and I hope that you do not mind speculating. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, who has of late anyway been a proponent of the president, has said that if Trump fired Mueller, it would essentially be the end of his presidency. And again, this is speculation. But what do you make of that assertion? If Trump were to fire Mueller or were, again, as we talked about, he really doesn't have the power to fire Mueller directly. But if he were to try to indirectly get about having Meyer fired, the political flames of controversy would really erupt, would be my, my sense. And they would erupt to such a degree that it would be more harmful, I would think, to the Trump presidency than leaving Mueller in place. So in many ways... Mueller has some protections because of two reasons. One, legal reasons right now. These regulations that are on the books provide him with some sorts of protections from firing at the moment. But then second, he has some protections right now due to political reasons, that it would be politically very dangerous for the Trump presidency to be perceived as meddling with Mueller's investigation. Well, Catherine Watts, uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to help enlighten some pretty complex matters. We, we really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. Catherine Watts' book is called The Limits of Presidential Power, and you will find a link to it on the SoundCloud page and also at our website, indivisiblepodcast.org. And now for our weekly dose of good news. And we will begin with the Democrats in the Senate successfully blocking what was being called the 20-week abortion ban. Now, this has been a top priority of anti-choice groups, so its failure strikes a pretty solid blow to their agenda. And even though this administration, particularly Vice President Mike Pence, has been doing everything they can to roll back reproductive rights at the federal level while they have a pliant Republican Congress, this vote seems to mark a line in the sand. 
Quote, it goes against the Constitution, against medical experts, and against the rights of women across the country, said our very own Senator Patty Murray. Uh, I should also mention that uh, Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, along with Maine Senator Susan Collins, also voted against the measure, as did newly appointed Alabama Senator Doug Jones. We turn next to Florida, where an initiative has qualified for the November ballot that would restore voting rights to over a million people with felony convictions. Something to keep in mind here is that the legal bar for felony is extremely low in Florida. Also, this would only include people who have successfully completed their sentences, and it would exclude anyone convicted of murder or a felony sex offense. Next, overseas in Israel, at least three pilots who fly for El Al have said they will refuse to fly planes that deport refugees. Said pilot Shaul Betzer, quote, I will not take part in flying refugees or asylum seekers to a destination in which their chance of survival is close to zero. And finally, as we look forward to the Academy Awards, I'm happy to report that the first female cinematographer, as well as the first transgender director, have been nominated. Also, with the nomination of Jordan Peele, he becomes the first African-American ever to be nominated for Best Writer, Director, and Producer in a single year. So, you know, even if you sit the Oscars out, and yeah, I get it, they're not, not everyone's bag, uh, these are still extremely positive signs that our culture is changing for the better. So there you go, and that'll do it for this week's Dose of Good News. And that'll also do it for this week's show. As always, for links to everything we talked about today, head over to indivisiblepodcast.org if you are not there right now, and subscribe if you have not yet to get the show delivered to your inbox. Do keep the correspondences coming. I love it. The emails, the tweets, etc. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guests, Andrew Jans and Catherine Watts. My special thanks go out to Natasha Mosiev, Heather Grieven, and Summer Stinson. And on this Friday's Week in Review, we will be joined by Seattle Taking Action's Sharmila Ajmera and the Strangers' Heidi Groover to get their take on the State of the Union and the many, many Democratic and the people's responses. Thanks as always, you guys, for listening. We will talk to you next time. Bye.